Welcome to episode 25 of the Camerosity Podcast, the fastest growing open source film photography podcast, the fastest growing photography podcast in the world. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and we have a very special episode for you tonight. Before we get to that, though, as always, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, a man who works harder in retirement than he ever did before, Mr. Paul Reibold. Do you ever wish you could get a 9-to-5 job so you could relax a little? You know, I'm thinking I might try to retire again. And from Gainesville, Florida, a man who has both a 9-to-5 and a 5-to-9 job, Mr. Anthony Rue. Do you ever get up in the morning and think to yourself, it's time to make the donuts? Every single damn day. Finally, all the way from the Digicam collector capital of the world, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. How does it feel to share your love for filmless cameras, Theo? Oh, it's, it's just liberating. I've been uh, on a big Digicam buying spree lately, so I'm really glad to actually talk digital for a change. Speaking of Digicams, our special guest tonight is none other than Steven Sasson, which for you history buffs out there know as the man credited as the father of the digital camera. In 1975, while working for Kodak, Steve created the world's first self-contained digital camera. Welcome to the show, Steve. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. I look forward to it. Also with us tonight is returning guest, Mr. Robert Shanebrook, who has been on the show before, most notably way back in episode eight, when we discussed with Robert and his 35-year history working for Eastman Kodak. Welcome, Robert. Thank you very much. And finally, first-time guest, Daniel Coons, a Kodak collector from Grand Rapids, Michigan, who has with him tonight an exact replica of Steve's original camera. Welcome, Daniel. Glad to be here. All right, well, Stephen, uh, let's just get started. I've definitely browsed your Wikipedia page before starting. I've read about you before. Getting the, the easy stuff out of the way, you grew up in Brooklyn. You have a master's in electrical engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, you started working at Kodak shortly after that, and uh, you had the opportunity to put together this camera at the age of 25. Walk us through that. Like, How, how does a guy so young getting a job at, at such a big company get put in a position to create something like the first digital camera? Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, you have my history right. Yeah, I joined Kodak in 1973. And um, and I had the opportunity to join in, in an applied research laboratory. And uh, so it was, it was a laboratory that was supported the apparatus division, which was the division of Kodak that made all the stuff or equipment that utilized the sensitized goods that were designed and built in Kodak Park, which was the other big division. So it was a very applied research laboratory. I was in an electronics research lab, a research group. And uh, it was just one day my supervisor came in with a filler job for me to look at uh, a new type of uh, imaging sensor. And I had done a work on how light affected silicon at RPI at my master's thesis. So I was predisposed to be interested in this. And uh, so I, uh, I, 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 I quickly grabbed the project I, I like to tell people that there really wasn't a lot of discussion about this. So the conversation with Gareth Lloyd, my supervisor, probably was less than a minute. He was leaning against the file cabinet and said, okay, we'll get one of these things and play with it and see if there's anything useful we can do with it. So with uh, basically nobody watching, uh, I decided to see if I could get it to work and measure its output. And the best way to measure an output is to put it to numbers. And so I decided to digitize the output and and I thought it would be nice to store the output so I could measure it. And then I realized I was building a sort of electronic camera. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to build a portable all-electronic camera with no moving parts? That last part was just me trying to annoy the mechanical engineers. Um, uh, but uh, then, uh, and then I thought, well, if I store this image, it'd be nice to view it. So I uh, tried to build... Um, a corresponding playback unit that are where I could view it electronically. So 
it, it evolved. Basically, my desire was to build a camera where the only consumable was a few joules of energy, um, both to capture and to see the image. And um, I had no idea how to do it, um, but nobody was paying attention. I had great resources and a lot of smart people to ask questions of. And um, so in the back lab, while nobody was looking, we were able to put this together. I worked with two technicians, uh, uh, a fellow named Bob Dieger, who configured a lot of that camera mechanical aspect that uh, David Coons has put together so well. Um, and, uh, and then the electronics part of it, which took us about a year to build, I worked shoulder to shoulder with a fellow named Jim Shipler, who was a technician uh, and was an enormous help as well. So. So that's really the story. Um, it was um, it was a pretty pretty uh, backroom project with nobody paying attention. So you were basically a, a one man skunk works. Oh yeah, yeah. We 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 had no we had no budget. I had no project reviews. The only person I spoke to about it for the duration was my supervisor. I met with him once every two weeks to talk about what I was doing. I was, you know, I had other projects that, you know, I was really supposed to do. And then there was this filler project that I kept doing. And so I would tell him about it and we talked a little bit about it and he thought it was fine, you know, but it wasn't until um, I actually had it working in December of 1975 that, um, that, that I told him I had taken my first picture and he thought he didn't think the camera was a portable camera. I said, no, it's portable. I can bring it anywhere we want. And so I didn't know that, you know, I mean, that's the depth of the conversation we had. We, we were, it was more of a, a technical exercise to see if we get the, the imager to work. So how heavy was it? It was about eight and a half pounds. Okay. Not too bad. Yeah, I, I, I weighed it when I did the report. I, I walked down to the scale by the cafeteria and stood on the scale with and without the camera. That's how I got the weight. So there's some versions of the story, I think, that incorrectly make it sound like you were some rebellious young employee that he was just going to put this thing together. But it sounds like you were tasked with a specific job of testing these sensors, and then you just sort of expanded the scope. Well, there, there really wasn't any stated goal. It was just get one and play with it and see if there's anything useful, you know. And I thought I'm in a research lab. We should measure performance, you know. So... Right. I sort of invented all that, that thing myself, which, by the way, I really sort of cursed myself a lot. I remember at home, you know, in the shower or something, I'd say, why the hell did I tell him I was going to build a camera? I have no freaking idea how to build this camera. You know, I, <laughs> I went piece by piece. Uh, didn't know it was going to work until it finally did work, which was after a year. We, we saw no results until everything worked. Uh, we only measured progress by voltage measurements and oscilloscope traces, you know. So, yeah. So it was, um, it, yeah, it, it, I was lucky that nobody was paying attention because, I, you know, I had a lot of a down days on that thing because, you know, everything had to be done from scratch. I, I couldn't find anything in the libraries about it. And I and a lot of the technologies I pulled together were not meant to work together. Um, and so right. so there was a lot of pulling stuff up and then using it in a way that nobody else used it or that I could see how they used it. So there was a lot of fiddling as we went along. So I was glad nobody was paying attention. I would have been scared to death. So they weren't paying attention initially. When you released your report, what was the initial reaction to that? Within Kodak, um, and that was the only reaction we got, I wasn't allowed to talk about any of this work uh, until uh, the year 2001. So it was about 25 years. I was not allowed to talk about it this. Um, but uh, I, what happened is when I got it, uh, the camera working, um, 
we started to demonstrate it to different levels of management. And if you've ever worked in a big company, you know that uh, how this works is you, you show it to the manager, the friends of the manager that you presently have. And that was the head of the laboratory. Was, his name was Bill Feldman. And um, he had a bunch of people that he knew and we invited them in. And I would come into the room and it was always done the same way. I would walk down from my lab with carrying the camera um, and I would walk into the room and take a picture of a person who was sitting in the front on the right as I walked in. No matter who it was, I just took their head and shoulder shot. And then while the camera was, the camera, the picture was captured in 50 milliseconds. And, and, uh, but it took, it took about 23 seconds to, to store the image to the tape. It was stored in, in DRAM and then it went to the more permanent form of statement. And that took 23 seconds. So while the tape was turning, I would explain to the people in the room, none of which whom I knew, uh, what this thing was, because you know nobody knew really what it was, and 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 then I would take a, a second picture when the tape stopped. I knew it had recorded the image. I took a second picture of a person who was sitting on the left, and uh, and then I would put the camera down and we pop out the tape, put it in the playback unit, and about thirty seconds after we put it in there, the first image would pop up on the TV set. So, and it was at that point that I usually lost control of the meeting. Um, because there were just a whole bunch of questions that people started to ask. So you ask about the reaction. Uh, the act reaction was a lot of questions, a lot of skepticism, and a lot of why. I thought they'd talk, ask me why, a how, you know, because I was a technical guy, spent last year pulling all these rabbits out of hats to try to get this thing to all work together, all this digital analog circuitry. The CCD itself from Fairchild, it was a 201, was a horrible device, um, just it was a nightmare to work with. Um, and again, an A to D converter, I used successive approximation when I stole that of a, an application note for a DVM and all this stuff. So I thought they'd ask me all that, but they didn't. They didn't ask me any of the hows. They, they asked me why. Why would anybody want to take their picture this way? You know, what? what, what? How did you respond to that? Um, I, I just thought it was, I just thought it was a cleaner way to do things. You know, I've been asked many times, sort of where my motivation for this came from. And I, I you know, I, I, think, I think it had to do with the fact that, that uh, I didn't like handling film and I didn't like dealing with paper. To me, modern scientific future was paperless. You know, like there was no, there was never any paper on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, you know? And I was a kid and that's how I grew up, you know? So my idea is if I could just capture an image and display it without, any consuming any materials or handling any materials, uh, that would be cool, right? So, so, so my answer was um, it would be a nice way to do it, and you'd save save a lot of money on materials. Of course, I really hadn't thought through the fact that our whole industry was based on the sale of materials, <laughs> and so um, there was there was a there was a lot of questioning about that at, at these early meetings. They were with with your your counterparts. It was the technical department. Well, no, not always. No, um, the the meetings sort of got, they they sort of multiplied. I gave them all throughout the. Um, I think the meeting started in January of '76, and they they were every few weeks. I had a meeting that was called by somebody. Actually, I called the meetings. Gareth would come in with a list of people to invite to the next meeting, and then I would send out the meeting notice. I was. You know, looking back on it, it took a lot of guts for the supervisor, Gareth, to permit me to do this um, because I was talking to people that were, you know, way above me in the company. 
And, and I would send out a meeting notice. And, you know, to show you how stupid I was, I entitled the meeting Filmless Photography, which kind of a bad choice of titles given the audience. But the fact is they would come from different parts of the company. And a lot of times, yes, they were technical, but they also were from business units, uh, marketing people, met with the lawyers for patents. That was another group. I remember them because they all wore suits and they had watches. I always thought that was odd. Um, so, so there were different groups of people I met with. And I would say we met at least 10 times with, with a group of eight or more people at different times. Well, I'm curious because with, with Kodak, it had this long history of both producing film, but also producing camera products. At, at any point, did anybody look at this curious box behind you and say, that's the modern brownie? No, no, <laughs> they didn't like it. Um, they, they, they wanted to talk about all the reasons why this was not a good idea. Uh, many people did. I shouldn't say, I, I, there were people that were very enthusiastic about the idea, usually on the technical side. Um, I got a lot of support from in the lab. I got a lot of support from the research laboratory people. But there were other people that were curious, like the people from business imaging. I remember in one meeting, I did that demonstration I just spoke about. And then halfway through the meeting, he just stood up. I remember this because it was really out of, out of character. He stood up and he took out of, the, of his wallet a, a bank check and he slammed it on the table and said, take a picture of that. And I did right there. And, um, and then it showed up on the screen. And then he walked over and looked at it really closely. And he said, not enough resolution. And then he turned to the other people in the room. I don't remember who they were. And he said, this thing works better than a whole room full of equipment I've seen anywhere else. And then he sat down. So he was thinking about business imaging applications. So it wasn't just for consumer photography. It was for all different, you know, Kodak had a very broad portfolio of products and industries they were in and were serving photographic needs for. And so all of these people got a chance to visit with, to see this and to, to contrast it with their world. Uh, I was mainly talking about consumer just because that's kind of what I was thinking about. But, but there were other applications people were thinking of as well. You had mentioned earlier that you used the Fairchild uh, CCD, so that stands to reason that other people might have been using a similar product to do something similar. Was there anybody else that was kind of on the same track as you uh, that maybe didn't have the vision that you did or they weren't? Was there any other practical application for the Fairchild CCD? Oh, yeah. I, I, people were, uh, Fairchild had application notes, and, and I know that people were doing astronom astronomy photography with it, you know, with a, with a stepper table, you know, obviously, because the resolution was high enough. Um, so people were doing that. I, I think it's a little misleading just to say self-contained camera. What was demonstrated in 75 was a self-contained camera, but also a playback system. So it was an entire photographic system that resulted in not only the capture, but the display of the system, all of which done without consuming materials. And that's what the conversation really revolved around was this photographic system camera and playback system to be able to do that. And that's what a lot of the questions came about. You know, I was asked all kinds of questions as to when this could be viable. What about the photo finishing business? What about the, the corner drugstore that sells film? What about all this stuff? You know, and I hadn't thought about any of that stuff, to be honest with you. So, but, but they, they questioned the system. But the fact that they, at least some of the people were already asking those questions suggests that somebody in the room might have had an oh shit moment and said, wait a minute, if this continues to evolve, then how are we going to keep selling film? So do you think there was a little bit of fear or were oh, they just yeah. not? 
I, they got it right away. I mean, I, okay. I wasn't I wasn't dancing around here. I, you know, I, I was kind of bold in what I was saying. I had no basis for saying any of this stuff. I'm a 25 year old kid that nobody knew who, who I was. Right. <laughs> um, so in a sense, I had the freedom and the luxury of not having a reputation to defend. And so I, I just basically said that this we didn't need film. When they asked me about the, the corner drugstore and selling film, I said they could sell batteries. You can imagine how that one went over. Um, so I hadn't really thought it through much at all. Um, I just was presenting this idea. Um, and, and I think people were thinking about it. The building of the prototype in 75 was, was a rather difficult thing to do. I was very lucky. I was in this research lab that had all these parts. Uh, the lens, you know, I got the whole lens assembly from the XL movie camera line that happened to be down there. I stole, stole the, an old XL movie camera uh, from the parts bin down there and use that lens. So not many people had access to all of this cool stuff that I could utilize. I mean, I had to, did have to buy a couple of things, um, but, but I had a, uh, a really good junkyard to, to pull from. Uh, so, so I was very lucky there. So if there was anything unique about the situation, it probably was the situation I was in and my, and my ability to utilize the environment that I was in. Did anybody come up and say, uh, we've got industrial designers in house. We can make this thing look like a camera, or was it just a notion of this is a working prototype? We'll figure that out later. No, they they were they were questioning whether this was worth talking about at all. I mean, they kept saying, "What's wrong with photography the way it is now?" And by the way, these pictures stink, right? And they did. Um, they were black and white. There was a lot of contouring and stuff. Um, I was constantly asked when this could be a viable form of photography, and of course, I didn't know. So I called the corporate research laboratories and I said, well, how many pixels would I need to be equivalent to 110 film? I took the lowest possible consumer standard I could find. And I said, uh, how many? And, and I remember talking to uh, Dr. Peter Dillon, one of the research lab guys there, and he had the answer right away. He said a million, two million if you need one color. So I had 10,000 black and white pixels. And how long would it take to get to two million? I used Moore's law just because everybody sort of believed Moore's law back then. And um, I had no idea if Moore's law applied to CCDs, by the way. I don't think it was ever meant to project that forward, but I didn't care. I was desperate. Anyway, I came up with between 15 and 20 years. And so that was the answer I gave him. I said, in 15 or 20 years, this will be available for, for consumer photography. And as luck would have it, it turned out to be 18 yeah. years later, we launched our first consumer camera. That's but that was complete luck. I mean, I can't tell you I had absolutely no basis for saying uh, that stuff. I just was, you know, kind of sick of being asked the same question and having a no answer. <laughs> question for Robert Shanebrook. So Robert, you worked at Kodak at the same time. And I remember when we spoke to you last time, you said you were aware of Steven, although you weren't involved with any of his progress. Um, was there like um, water cooler talk about what Steven was working on? Or was there, was there any like rumors of anything? Or what, what did you hear? Well, I was actually in the same laboratory. Yeah. Okay. So I, Steve and I saw each other every day. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, wow. you know, it's not like there's some guy named Steve Sasson who might be doing this, but I saw Steve every day. The, the image that Steve used, the boy and dog, is the same image I was using for other studies. So we were close. And I knew Gary Lloyd and. Yeah, that's where that's where I got the image, Bob. I think it was from you, right? Yeah. I mean, yep, yeah. Yep. I, I needed to do a test target. So I went to Bob, who's the, he was the image scientist kind of guy. And and he gave me because it was a black and white test image, the boy dog image. Right. So yep. 
I, that's the one I use. Like so that's where I got it. Yeah. And, and that boy dog image is the image that we use to test or audit cameras that were being sold. We had a whole wall of these images that I designed and Every month or so, they pull a bunch of cameras off the pro off the production line and photograph the boy dog wall, and we use this for subjective quality factor evaluation and all sorts of stuff. I inherited the image originally from somebody else, and the one I gave Steve is one that I photographed, which was second generation. So there there was no mystery here. I knew what Steve was doing. I was work. I was I was not as successful as Steve. I was working on liquid crystals. And we had very good liquid crystal technology, photoconductor liquid crystal technology. And at one point, I was told this uh, electronic photography stuff isn't going anyplace. You really ought to find a real job. So I left <laughs> KAD Research Lab and moved. And I looked at opportunities. And I decided, I decided the film business had a few more years in it. So I moved to the, to the film business at that point. And Steve stayed in the KAD Research Laboratory. I, I will make a comment that I was about to make before you called on me. Remember, everyone, okay, everyone does, you know, we can all look back and say, boy, were those guys stupid. They should have really seen that digital photography was going to take over the world. Well, everyone didn't have the foresight, including me, of that Steve had. And when we looked at digital photography, even in the 90s, I personally didn't believe it was ever going to take over uh, in the 80s and 90s. We were still plowing money into ectochrome film and in the 90s into portrait film and realized the company on the film, on the silver halide side, in around 2000, was still making about a billion with a B dollars a year on silver halide materials. We, we being most people, including myself, didn't think that the elect that the business was going to go away. We we realized that in the I'll say in the mid 90s we realized that we were going to be seriously impacted. But even in the late 90s, I was still able to fund silver halide businesses, silver halide products, research and development, and make that money back in a relatively short period of time. So when we came out with portrait film, we made we were not constrained whatsoever by the onslaught of digital. We replaced uh, all the existing films with portrait type technology, and we were very successful at it. We didn't have a 15 or 18 or 20 year horizon we were seeking. We were seeking a two or three year horizon. So um, I, 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 I kind of remember, I think I know the, the, the guy who threw his check on the, on the table, by the way. Steve. Oh, who was it? It was either Mark Hargrave or Larry Brunel. All right. All right. From business imaging? They're the BSMD guys. Yeah, and yeah. I, was work, I worked on them some, with something called Comstar. Uh, and that's exactly what they would have done, either one of them. Yeah. Uh, but realize that you don't plan for 20 years out. You plan for a sh much shorter horizon. And we were fat, dumb, and happy making uh, silver halide film and paper. Not many businesses have been converted 
with such a technical impact as the silver halide photography business. And it, it clearly crashed. I don't deny that at all, but it crashed much faster than I had anticipated and much it was much more devastating than I had anticipated. Just to add to that, there were even from, I would say from 1975, from the first demonstration, right through about 1989, we had a lot of serious discussions about whether this would ever pan out, ever work. Would the imagers ever get big enough, cheap enough? You know, uh, would the electronics, supporting electronics ever be made available to allow us to do that? It was a long time and a lot of questions. I was working in the field that whole time, and we had lots of arguments about whether the, this would be viable. You know, there were the believers, and then there were the people who didn't necessarily believe, but there were, it, it was right to doubt it because there were a lot of questions. Realize the progress that they made. Yeah. And we, yeah. we, we, the Silver Halide guys, were assuming they're going to run into a cement wall eventually. But instead, Moore's law actually proved to be true. Sensors, realize how much better sensors got and how inexpensive storage became. You know, if storage was, st was still expensive, you'd have a very difficult time justifying a digital camera. And if sensors didn't get a lot better, you weren't, you weren't going to be able to equal silver halide image quality. We had pretty good image quality. And... For years, the guy who ran the professional image, uh, professional camera business, called Kodak Professional Digital Still Camera, his office was next door to mine. So I saw images literally, literally every day because he plastered them on my wall, and we were we were ahead. But that, and we kept getting realized we kept getting better, but we didn't get better nearly at the rate of Moore's law. We were getting better, you know, one little step at a time and they were getting better by orders of magnitude at a time. For anybody who doesn't know, would you be able to explain what Moore's law is? Yeah, Gordon Moore, I don't remember exactly what year, but I know it was pre-1975, uh, made some sketches in a notebook and then made a pronouncement, I don't know if it was an article or at a talk, where the that he felt that uh, the, the, the density and the cost, the density would go up by a factor of two every two years and then uh, the cost would be in half, uh, and that would happen forever, uh, or for as long as he was alive, I guess. And then he changed <laughs> it, I think, to every 18 months, I think. That was a, there was a change there. Moore's Law always wasn't exactly the same, but at the time when I was uh, quoting it, I think I used the 18-month number. I think that had just been published. So it was a prediction on the part of uh, one of the gurus in the Silicon Valley. Well, it seems to have had some kind of merit because you said you used that in your wild guess of when digital photography would become viable, and you were pretty close. Well, well, you know, why I used it was you got to understand, I I'm 25 years old, got no credibility at all, and they're asking me all these really tough questions. And so I have no data to support any of my suggested applications and futurists, future ideas. And so what you did was you used analogy. So you used whatever was acceptable at the time. And Moore's law was kind of accepted, right, at the time. And, um, and so I thought, if, well, if I use that, then they can't attack me for that, right? So right, that's right. why I used it. And I thought it was a reasonable thing to do. I, I, I don't know if CCD should have followed Moore's law because he was thinking about transistors as they were integrated on pieces of silicon. So Yeah, you hear it a lot when talking about computational power. Is, is where I've heard it. But, you know, you, you get desperate, you know, so... Uh, no, I think it obviously was the right decision because uh, 
Uh, you were right. I was incredibly lucky. I, I just, I, you know, <laughs> I, I had nothing else. I was out of bullets. Yeah. Taking it back, though, to senses getting better, I'm imagining that you had multiple iterations before you started demonstrating the actual results in, in meetings and so on. Maybe could, could you talk us through a little bit on how, you know, how the first, you know, the first one came out and then how, how that progressively got better to the point where it was uh, displayable? Um, I'll tell you, I, I utilized, well, first of all, in the early, in the late 70s, Kodak really wasn't making imagers. We decided we were going to make them, but they started buying, they bought the same CCD 201. I think Dave Lewis uh, had one of those operating in a movie camera at some point. Um, but they, uh, and then RCA came out with what was called the Big Sid Array, uh, which was a half, half resolution NTSC imager, as I remember. Um, and and we use those as 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 examples. I the next camera I built in the lab used the big sit array, but but Kodak got interested in this. And Kodak, you know, we didn't know much about the technology, but we knew about how good pictures had to be. And so uh, so a lot of people were thinking about how to go and do this. Obviously, Bryce Fire was working on how to get color out of a, a monochromatic two dimensional array. And uh, he came up with the buyer array. And that was around the same time. I remember meeting with Bryce in his office one time because I had no idea how to get color. And uh, he, you know, he was a mathematician, more or less. And he was working on it. And then people started working in the physics division about how to manufacture these CCDs. The first time Kodak demonstrated a megapixel sensor, and I, I, Bob, I may be incorrect on this. I thought it was around 1986. Um, they, 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 they demonstrated it and they had to because Sony demonstrated a, a CCD and it was, uh, it was only like a 512 resolution, like VGA resolution. And we knew that was never going to be good enough for photography. Um, but people were thinking, well, I'll just replace a video camera, right, with video resolution, right? But we knew it had to be better than that. So we were making much higher resolution, but we didn't want to tell anybody about it. But we didn't want Sony to be seen like the only person thinking about this stuff. So they uh, they trotted one of these out in 76 at one of the shows in Las Vegas. And that was the first time we showed it. And then at that point, we kept working on it and we never really talked much about it. I think, you know, as, as frustrated as people like me were in terms of building systems and looking at signal processing, I think the sensor people must have been very frustrated because they were doing really pioneering work in how to build these things. And they really weren't allowed to like write papers and make presentations just because Kodak was looked at as a, as a, a leader for imaging. And if we were doing this, they think, well, next week they're gonna come out with a digital camera. And of course that was not the case, but we were making good strides on it. And the first imager I used in Ecamm in 89 was like a 1.2 megapixel buyer array uh, imager. Uh, it was a really pretty good. And, and, and then McGarvey's cameras in 90 were, I think, 1.5. I see Todd Gustafson here. He might correct me on that. But I think they were like 1.5 megapixel sensors. And they had pretty good resolution and pretty good dynamic range. Not as good as today, but, but you know, for the time. I have another question for you that, uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, part of your challenge in this project was getting the image off the camera and into a display. At the time, I'm assuming that tape drives were or tape you know, products were the most efficient way, but were there modem products that you considered at the time? Because I know that there were acoustic modems 
around at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, the, the, the discussions that we had in 75 were quite wide ranging. They, they had to do, we probably had the first wide ranging discussions about digital photography in that room. Because there were a lot of really smart people that came in with different ideas about possibilities, right? Not everybody was negative about this stuff. Just a couple of people whom I can tend to remember. I don't know, um, but they 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 um, uh, and and we talked about uh, how to send images over telephone lines. Uh, and and at the time, the internet was just starting to. It was ARPANET or something, and it was just a couple of universities tied together, as I remember. And and so whenever I thought about transmitting, and we talked about transmitting this, I wrote this in the report as well. Uh, using acoustic modems, but I always thought point to point. The whole idea of the internet and and social networking was, you know, not mentioned at all. Um, but but we did talk about sending images over telephone lines point to point at at a, at a point. So that was just like one of the options that you could do with this technology. Not that anybody knew what to do with it at the time, but we did have that discussion, and it is in the technical report. What time was this that, that you were having this, the time frame for this discussion? These discussions, the discussions I'm referring to took place between January and June of 1976. Wow, that early. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I was a Kodak DCS dealer and I supplied newspapers and the military with uh, a lot of the cameras in the 80s. I had no idea. And they were, of course, using the, the, the transmission to do for various uh, news stuff primarily. But uh, I had no idea that you were already working on it that early. Yeah, we were working on it. I don't know if you were using still video floppy kind of technology back in the 80s. You know, Mavica was coming out. Zap shot. The Canon zap shot was. Uh, zap shot. Yeah, right. Primary. Um, we, we, we never went that way. I mean, Kodak did talk about doing it as a product line. We knew that, did, that one of the advantages Kodak had was we knew the business we were trying to replace. And we knew how good it had to be. And it had to be better than what Sony and Canon were thinking. So we knew instead of revolving around the television set, it was going to revolve around the emerging personal computer. And so, so all of our technology, all of our intellectual property that was generated in the late 80s and early 90s, and there was a considerable amount of it, uh, centered around a computer-based imaging systems, which turned out to be the right answer. Um, and so, uh, so, so we had the right answer, but it, it took a longer time to get there Sony, of course, launched Mavic or talked about Mavic in 81. Uh, and Canon, I think, came out with cameras sometime in the mid 80s to late 80s. Um, but they were never going to be good enough to replace the, the to, be, to compete with film based cameras. That, and Bob mentioned he was absolutely correct. Film was, was evolving at this time uh, and it was pretty damn good. Uh, so if you're going to try to replace the whole photographic world, you can't do it with something that's inherently worse. Uh, even though it had other features. And for anybody who doesn't know the Zap Shot or the Mavica he's talking about, the, the biggest difference was those were essentially a camcorder that used a still video image. So you had you were limited to just whatever the resolution of your television was. Like I know I'm probably oversimplifying it, but it, it'd be like pausing an image on a VHS tape video as opposed to what Steve's talking about where you're actually writing a digital image that could be read back on a computer, you know, the ones and zeros yeah. and such like that. There, there were little magnetic discs, two inch magnetic right. discs. People confused them. They thought they were digital because they were looked like, you know, the three. Right. And they look like floppy drives, but yeah. they weren't. They were they were analog recordings. It was a it was a it was a, a an, an adaptation of NTSC technology 
It was called right. a, it was called an FM color under system, but they took the subcarrier and moved it down so as to it would work on a revolving platter. But it was basically television technology, analog technology, right. and we always we always knew that was never going to work out because it would never get good enough because of the inherent limitations of the format. Well, there was another device called the Photovix that uh, used that same system, but to scan negatives and slides and transfer them as still images, but onto videotape. Uh, that was a primary market for that was uh, wedding and portrait photographers. Now, videotape had its own limitations as well for stills. It, it just had to be so much better than that in order to compete with film. Film is like really good. Um, and, and so uh, you, you have to, uh, it, it was a much longer road and we knew it was going to be a longer road to get there. And, and a lot of people wanted it to be a longer road. Don't get me wrong. Um, but we knew technically it was going to be a long road. I, I would say we had a lot of questions about signal processing, image compression. We worked on all those technologies um, and we pulled it together in 89 for ECAM, which was a project we did. Um, and at that point, I think, it became clear that the technology could be put, brought together in a couple of years so that it would could could at least make a run at a, at a, at a DSLR type image. Were you still at the, with the project at that point? I mean, at the when it came out with the first uh, DCS SLRs? No, I was McGarvey's guys. Uh, we did ECAM and they turned us down flat. We, me and Bob Hills built ECAM with a team and ECAM was the first, it was a, it looked just like a DSLR. It was, was we used chin on parts. We used the, the 1.5 megapixels uh, CCD imager. We used uh, image compression, DCT based compression. This was before JPEG was a standard, but we knew that was gonna happen. Uh, and we used DRAM cards. So, and we went to marketing and we said, could you sell it? And they said, sure we can, but why would we? Um, we don't want this. Uh, so. You know, we had reached we had reached now a marketing limitation. It's not a technical one. Well, at that point, were they still were they still patenting the the technology that you were coming up with? Yeah, yeah. And the the probably one of the most lucrative patents in the in the patent wars in the early two thousands was what's called the one hundred and nine patent. That was the one that that Bob and I got on ECAM, and um, that that turned out to be basically the the basic architecture around DSLRs, and uh, Kodak used that in an offensive way to extract uh, licensing revenue from, well, just about everybody, I guess, um, at that time. So yeah, they, and that, that wasn't the only one. There was a lot of innovative work going on in the research laboratories, both at the CCD level and also at the systems level. So Kodak was patenting a lot of, a lot of intellectual property that turned out to be very useful later on. While we've been talking, real quick, we've had a few people join us. Um, you had mentioned already Todd Gustafson, uh, author of this wonderful book, if uh, Zoom will let me display it. I see Mark Peterson's back. So I have more questions. I hope you guys do. I don't want to keep talking, but just wanted to point out we have a few extra people here. If anybody wants to ask a question, feel free to jump in or uh, type something up in the chat and we'll try to get it answered. So uh, Stephen, John works at a camera store in South Bend, Indiana. Paul used to, did you own a store, Paul, or you just worked there? Yes, I owned one. You owned one. Okay. So he's a long 
longtime camera store guy. A couple of us are bloggers. Daniel Coons, I invited him on the show because he has the replica. And for those of us on the call right now, we can see it behind him. So I thought we should probably spend a little bit of time talking about this because the original Stevens at the Eastman House, right? Oh, I wish it was. No, it's at the. It's in the building twenty-eight at Kodak Park. Um, it's Kodak. It's Kodak owns it. Okay. Created a little museum. And it's one of the one of the pieces uh, in that little museum, which is available okay. to the public. You can walk in and see it. It's in a big booth or something there. So, Daniel, you built this thing. So I have a picture. I actually put it in the show announcement. And Daniel corrected me. It's Daniel standing next to Stephen, and they're each holding the camera. But I did not realize that Daniel's holding the real one and Steven's holding the replica. That is correct. When you look at that picture, it's impressive for such a strange looking prototype that was put together with off the shelf parts. It's got a blue kind of cubic top with a black lens and uh, you can see the circuit board, some white, they look like teeth. This thing looks like it's going to eat you. It's remarkably similar. So... Daniel, obviously you could probably talk for hours about it, but you know, how did, yeah. what made you want to do this and and how did you go about creating that thing? I think long story short for me was I got into photography when digital was well on its way in late 90s early 2000s and I could see like okay, it really does seem to be taking over and I was just a high school kid at the time and I'm a store manager at a camera store in Grand Rapids. And I started wanting to collect early digital and I was trying to get as far back as possible. And I kept getting falling back to Steve Sasson's camera. And it's like, oh my goodness, I want one of those. Obviously you can't just buy one. And I just kind of got obsessive over it. And I actually reached out to Todd Gustafson who ended up was an insane help and helped me with getting all these high resolution images and the higher resolution images she got me, the more obsessed I got. And I was like, I can make an exact non-working replica. And they were at Kodak Center. They were opened up the camera and took pictures of circuit boards. So all the circuit boards and wiring and everything as close as I could make it. A little over a year ago, I and a few friends went out to Rochester to meet Todd and Steve. And I was a giant child and met them and was able to show off the my uh, copy and it was so much fun. <laughs> so Steven, what were you thinking when this bearded guy comes up to you with this, this, this very, very close replica? I mean, it had to have been impressive to you, right? My initial reaction was I didn't know why anybody wanted to do that. Um, <laughs> but to be honest with you, I, when I, I, I met David, um, he came to Rochester and I saw his, his first prototype. It was extraordinarily well done. I mean, I was just very impressed. I was finding it hard to find any flaws in it that weren't pretty close to what, what I had built. Um, and so uh, so I was really impressed with the detail that he went to with this. So previous to this, Kodak, you know, Kodak didn't pay much attention to this prototype. I kept it in a cabinet for years just because it was cool. I should have gotten rid of it because of the, the way you should do that with R&D funded projects. But um and then when it became of interest and, and an advantage for Kodak to have invented the digital camera, there was a lot of attention paid to it. And they wanted to send the camera around the world for different marketing reasons. And of course, that was a problem for a bunch of reasons. You know, how do you ensure something like this and that kind of thing? Um, so they talked about making a, 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 a model of it, a duplicate. 
they even sent some bids out to some really fancy houses in California that did this kind of stuff. But I doubt if any of those places would have done a better job than David did. I think David's uh, work was was outstanding. It's right on. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun. One of my uh, favorite little details that Steve did was on the back of it, you have the sticker that says, please return to Steve Sasson. And instead of him signing it, which a number of friends told me to do, I asked uh, Steve to handwrite the same label just so I can actually stick it on there. And it's an authentic looking quote unquote signature, if you will. <laughs> That's cool. That's a label that I put on in the sometime in the eight to late eighties. I, I used to put it in a file cabinet and you know how you move your career, you move offices and buildings. And, and I, one time I had, I had left it in a cabinet and I had moved. And then finally somebody came in with it and said, is this yours? And I said, oh, my goodness, you know, I left it there. You know, it was just a little, little trinket that I kept because of emotional reasons and nothing else. And uh, and so then I decided to write that on because I knew I'd leave it somewhere else again. So that's why it's there. So at what point after you created it, Steve, did you realize that this thing was going to be in a museum someday? Like maybe, you know, you should take care of it or something like was there ever a point where, like, holy crap, this this thing has some historical significance? You know, I, no, I, it's amazing. Nobody paid attention to this for twenty five years. That's a long time. Yeah. And um, and then when it when it uh, started to get of interest, I told them I had the camera. We took a picture of it in in uh, two thousand and one. That was the first time I ever took it out and showed it to anybody in the public. It was taken by a local photographer of a newspaper. And then at that point, I even asked the, 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 the public relations department, I said, are you sure I should take this picture? Because, you know, for a couple of generations, you were telling me never to talk to anybody about this. Uh, and they said, oh, yeah, now we want you to tell every, the story. Oh, OK, so um, and then it grew and you know, the story got told and then they made a PR campaign around it. And I went and talked and all over the world on it. And uh, and then the item became quite of interest. And then uh, it, it ended up, I always wanted to go to the George Eastman house just because of the legacy of George Eastman and, and the Eastman house knows how to take care of old equipment, but Kodak hasn't relinquished it yet. They still own it, but they did lend it to the Smithsonian for a couple of years. It was down there. Uh, and, and, you know, just to have anything that I built, anything in the Smithsonian is a remarkable, uh, you know, I, I just honored as hell uh, for that. So so I, it's hard to answer. I don't know. I, to me, it's just my baby. You know, <laughs> you know, I, this is this is what I did many years ago. And, you know, it's not a relic or anything. It's just a thing that I put together. Please tell me that the first public photo of your device was taken with a digital camera. No, it wasn't. It was a film <laughs> camera. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think it's funny. You had mentioned earlier the guy who threw the bank check down that from the moment the first digital camera was made, people were already thinking of more pixels. Oh, yeah. Well, it was obvious. You know, it was obvious that the resolution wasn't enough. I mean, if you took a look at the boy dog picture, and there's a picture in my report that shows the, the boy dog transparency next to the projected image on a TV set of the same image. And you can see that, there, you know, the whiskers and all of that, the resolution was never not not good enough. And we knew that. And I was just trying to demonstrate a system that would work, you know, and it worked well enough. You know, it, it was always the situation where people would argue with me in those meetings in 76 about how this would never work. And 
they would argue with me with their picture staring at them from the TV set. It worked, just not well, you know, or good enough. And, and, and then you were betting against things improving. And I was willing to take that bet because I knew that a lot of the technology was being driven by the computer industry and Kodak wasn't going to drive it, but it was going to happen anyway. Uh, the only thing that was unique was the CCDs and there was a lot of development going on then. But Kodak took up that mantle because they knew what they had to do. So was there ever a moment 20 or 30 years later where you just sort of had that aha moment where you saw a digital imaging product, a camera and said, this is what I was working for. This is that this is the payoff. Yeah, there was. Uh, there was a, I, I tell this story because it really happened. And it was one of those things where you like your work life and your real life sort of collide. Um, it was in 1998. We, we had taken a family trip out to Yellowstone and we were sitting around um, Old Faithful and Old Faithful had a whole bunch of benches there. And there's a big clock for the next eruption coming up. And so me and my wife sat down there and and, and then the crowd started to gather and and I saw people taking out their cameras. And in 98, it, there were some digital cameras. There were film cameras. There were still video floppy cameras. And I remember saying to my wife, wow, it's happening. You know, and then she said, what's happening? And then I told her about my prototype, you know, and, and I had probably taken the first digital snapshots. And, and it, it was this moment where, you know, when you do your work, you're thinking about electrons and signal bandwidth and all that kind of stuff. And, and then you're on vacation somewhere else in the world and you see what you were thinking and dreaming about many years ago actually taking place. And so that's the moment I like to tell people about because that really happened. It was one of those almost surreal, surreal moments. Steve, this is obviously a camera show. What do you shoot with these days? Uh, the smallest camera I can carry. Um, you know, I, I, do, I, use a, I use the iPhone a lot, but I do have, a, I do have some Nikon's uh, DSLRs. I do some consulting on IP issues. And sometimes I have to buy cameras for that purpose. So I end up with probably more cameras than I use. Um, but I, I think I have a couple of Nikon's DSLRs uh, and I have a little, I just bought uh, about a, two years ago or a year and a half ago, uh, a, a Nikon Z50, a real small uh, mirrorless camera just to try mirrorless. And I, I use that when I go on a vacation or something, just because it's, it's a little bit smaller than the DSLRs. Do you still have the Leica M9? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, Todd has is, Todd is scared, scared me to death. Uh, I'm afraid to take it out of the box. Uh, <laughs> he's told me that it's uh, too valuable to, to take out. So I, I keep it. It's a really cool camera, though. I mean, I, it's a work of art. I, I must say, every once in a while, I'll take it out just to look at it, you know. So for people who don't really know the complete story of how Kodak was involved with digital cameras. We've covered already that you showed off your first camera to some people. Some of the people got it right away of what this could be. And it stands to reason that Kodak, whose a majority of their business was from the film business, would see this as a threat and want nothing to do with digital photography at all. But the reality is it's not true because they continue to evolve the technology. Uh, Kodak probably played as big of a role as anybody over the next two decades in the development of digital cameras, uh, specifically the sensors. And like you pointed out earlier, they correctly predicted that going with a, a, a true digital you know, computer format was the better solution than the video floppy method. Um, I don't have anywhere near as old of the, the DCS um, digital cameras, but I do have the DCS Pro SLR N, which uh, a lot of these early 
Kodak DSLRs were based off of Nikon. They also had a few that were Canon bodies too, where they would essentially make like a hybrid digital camera uh, using like the lens mount, the shutter, the basic electronics from an established Nikon or Canon SLR, but then they would handle all the digital like part of it. And you, you end up with this, like this one's a later one. I think this model came out in 2005. So it's it's fairly compact-ish. But when you look at some of the earlier digital cameras from like the 80s and 90s, these things were huge. You know, they have, you know, they didn't have SD cards back then. You know, they had, in some cases, hard drives connected to them to store the media. But what I like, though, about that story is that Kodak actually continued to evolve the technology. And I think they just got to a point where everybody else kind of said, all right, we get it now. You know, we're going to, we're going to take off. Fuji took off with them. Uh, Minolta even had a few interesting cameras too that sort of became, became big. And, you know, like you predicted by the, by the mid nineties, the pros were starting to say, Hey, uh, this is actually quite useful. Uh, it would probably be very early two thousands before the prices would drop low enough for consumers to buy them. The original Nikon D one was like, a $3,000 camera back then, you know, adjusted for inflation, you're talking five, six grand today. So, you know, these things were expensive, but the technology was changing really, really fast. And I love how, even though it ended up being the downfall of the company, Kodak was in it, you know, to the very end. And, you know, you said that even as, as, as recently as the mid nineties, Robert, a lot of people didn't actually think that it would ever catch on and, and totally take over. But, you know, these, these old Kodak DSLRs actually, I think are really, really cool. And if you ever have have an opportunity to shoot one it, it's it's a challenge you know i mean it's harder today to shoot a 20 year old digital camera than it is to shoot a 100 year old film camera because you have obscure usb cables file systems that sometimes aren't compatible modern computers may not be able to read you know detect the, the camera or anything like that so i think i think that part of the history is really cool and that's circling all the way back to something i said at the top of the show you know i, I call this the film photography podcast but i just like history and i i love having guys like steven on to talk about this part of 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 history because the reality is film and digital coexist uh digital obviously is still bigger you know smartphones the things that smartphones can do are are amazing and you know you you talk about the possibility of adding a modem to a camera way back then well try to describe in 1975 facebook or instagram or a, a podcast even to, to people back then and, and they'd probably ask the same question you were asked even why would anybody want that and I think that's a question we struggle with today still. Why, why do we actually want this stuff? I have a question for you, Robert. As somebody who is working alongside and in the same lab as Stephen, was there a tipping point for the the coding division and the film division where they're like, oh, crap, Stephen's crazy little blue box is going to eat our lunch? I mean, was there a tipping point or was it just sort of like, a you know, the proverbial frog in the in the in the boiling water where they don't realize it until it's too late? I don't think there was the realization that it was going to happen, as, as, as he just mentioned, that even in the 90s, we thought there was room for both to exist. I remember in the mid-90s, how most professional photography was done. It was shot on film, then even in the portrait wedding business, the Kodak HR 500 was very popular for scanning. So digital files were created. So there was a hybrid system. And realize we were still 
still the film business was still doing very well in the 2000s we knew that it was changing we knew there was going to be a decline but perhaps we were fat dumb and happy but the film business is still doing well we built in around 1990 we made a major investment in a new film production called building 38 which is which is still operating today and that was a huge investment, let's just say hundreds of millions of dollars. And at that point, the whole film manufacturing technology was reworked and refined, and we raised the bar even higher. So we kept raising the bar. You know, Steve's, Steve's chasing a, a rising bar the whole time. He was comparing to the films that were used for 110, he mentioned earlier. Well, those films compared to the films of 1990 and 2000 were far inferior to what we were selling in 2000 and they continue to sell today. We stopped and we stopped investing in R and D in film uh, when I retired around 2003, but until, until then we were investing pretty heavily and even after 2003, they came out with some better films using technology that we had developed in the late 90s and the early 2000s. It takes a few years before the technology gets refined well enough after you determine what you want to do until you put it into commercial practice. I don't think there was a, I'm not aware that there was a moment when you said, oh boy, we're, we're really, really, really in trouble. We knew this was, was happening. I think the bankruptcy of the company came as rather a surprise. I, I hope that shows you where we were. But we were very aware. I can't tell you how aware we were of digital. I mentioned earlier that the guy in the next office ran the, digi the professional digital program. And when we had management reviews, we would go either before the digital guys or after we, we making presentations at the same time. And when we had uh, meet, we had quarterly meetings where we bring the people in from all the marketing companies around the world. And I would give a session on what, where we were on film and what we would be doing. And someone else like McGarvey, he had mentioned, would give a presentation on where they were on various professional digital cameras. And so we were very, very aware of it. And our management was very aware of it. I worked in the professional division and that's where we did a lot of the film development. And the professional film digital guys, uh, Madhav, I'm speaking of, Steve. I forget okay. his last name. He, he was doing the, the uh -huh. digital camera stuff, and we'd present and talk to each other. And we, we talked to each other literally every day. We knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what we were doing. They would shoot film in when they were evaluating their – uh, various camera systems, they would shoot either ectochrome or whatever the color negative film happened to be at the time. So it's not like people were working in silos and weren't aware of what each other were doing. We were very aware of it. Uh, we were also very aware of digital, sc the scanning. We all talked together. We were all, we were all a relatively small community. People picture this huge company and they think the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. But in the business units, we were, we were very aware. We also traveled, the film guys, for me in specific, we, I traveled all over the world visiting labs. And I would go to, to labs and 
I would go, you talked about, uh, Paul was talking about what the newspapers were doing. I visited the AP in Washington many times and dealt with their digital darkroom. And I knew how to use most of their equipment. We were very aware of it. We weren't, we didn't have our heads in the sand by any means. The quantum leap though was, was just in May of 2003 when Kodak came out with the Pro 14N camera, which was you know, the second full frame DSLR camera. The first one was a Contax N, which nobody ever bought, it was sort of a dog. But the Pro 14N really changed everything in the professional market because suddenly you were at 14 megapixels and a yep. full frame sensor. So you had the ability to do th- do the same basic work you were doing with a with a 35 millimeter film camera, and in some cases even better. But for the for government uh, and news news markets, it was slow. It was 1.7 frames a second. It was for for instant recording. It gave you the quality that you really needed to have. And about that time is when we in September 2003 we said that for 2004, we were not going to spend the big bucks we had previously spent on developing new films. That announced, I think that was September 2003, and I, I willingly retired on October 1st, 2003. I saw the end. What I guess if there was a point in time, I personally said, we're not going to do much more film work. I don't really need to be here. So uh, I, I retired in October 2003. Well, so the, the Portra NC and VC and the uh, Ektachrome, the E100SW and, uh, yeah. and those films, those came out, was it early 2000s? Yes. That was before you retired. Oh, yeah. I did. I was Mr. Portra. I did Portra. I worked on Portra for several okay. years. So you did the NC and VC. Ektachrome, the, the saturated, you know, the saturated Ektachrome. All those films were done prior to 2003. The only thing that, that came out after October 2003 was some refinements on stuff we had already had in the pipeline and was about ready to go. But we did not invest in new materials for films. Uh, Portra had a lot of new components in it and a lot of new technology. Dr. Chrome VC had a lot of new stuff in it, but that was the last implementation of that technology. So at that time, a lot of the SO films went away too. The SO-279 and the uh, the special purpose films, Tech Pan. Yeah, okay. They're different for different reasons. SO-279 was a dupe film and that went away basically due to volume. Uh, Tech Pan was using something called a U-Make, which was a, a special piece of equipment and unfortunately, that went away. I, I, I wish TechPan didn't go away, but it didn't have any choice. And Kodachrome, Kodachrome was a different thing, too. And that, that was basically vol, volume dependent and the, the necessity of having high quality labs available um, ended up with Kodachrome going away. So a lot of that is volume dependent. It's the volume, as the volume is decreasing, you can't reinvest. You can't make that money back. We'd like to make the money back in about two years on an investment. Steve, if I, if I can go back to your, your prototype, your, your first camera for a second, did any of its DNA carry forward into what we would consider to be contemporary digital cameras? I mean, is, you know, when did the, your, your, whether it's patentable or not, did any of, of, of your, 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 your breakthrough technology 
make it on or was the the prototype kind of a a technological dead end where you you, you proved your your concept but it didn't carry through to additional products uh, we filed a patent in 76 and in 78 it was granted 919 patent and it was the first patent for a digital camera when when the intellectual property wars around digital photography started up in the late 90s i remember getting a call about the 919 patent um, and it, i was in a meeting one time actually and we were going around introducing ourselves and i mentioned my name and some guy said did you file a patent way back when and uh I said, oh, yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about it. And, uh, and uh, he said, too bad, it just expired. And, and he said, too bad it didn't, it just expired because we could use it. And, and then they were starting to get ready to, to do this, all this intellectual property wars that they were having at that point in time. So the basic architecture that we defined in the patent is, is reading out from, a, from, a, from a, an imager uh, to a uh, to a uh, to a memory, and then reading out of that memory at a slower rate to a more permanent form of storage. That's what was that was the heart of claim one on the nine one nine patent, and that represents the fundamental architecture behind all digital cameras. So they, if they could have found, if they could have enforced that in licensing, um, they could have they could have uh, you know been in an advantageous position because of that basic architecture. But it expired before digital cameras really started to take off. So there was no money in suing anybody <laughs> around that stuff at that point. But I remember someone mentioning that to me, and I was just dumbstruck that they even remembered we had done it. So The original prototype wrote to cassette tape. So it, it stored a digital image in an anal on an analog tape. But was there ever any attempt to get that raw digital data into a computer so that it could be manipulated on a computer? Or was it only ever export or output onto a television? Well, it was actually the, the playback unit was built off of a microprocessor development system. So it was actually, we had to, you only had 100 lines of information. And as you know, NTSC displays about 480, 490 lines on the screen. So we had to duplicate it. So it was in a computer. The thing is, we had to build a computer. There were no personal computers at that point. Uh, so we built the computer and we would uh, interpolate or duplicate the one line into in, into four lines. And so we were we were doing, you know, assembly language programming. Uh, we were doing all that stuff, but it was all hand done by hand. So it was in a computer and we were computer manipulating it, but it was very, very basic stuff uh, because there were no operating systems at the time. Remember, this was in 1970. We were doing this work in 75, actually. So there was no Photoshop to... Uh... No, that would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> I would have, I would have. When was the last time the pro the prototype was used? Like, what? When, when was the last time it stopped working? Oh, it probably stopped working in '76. I mean, once I got done doing the uh, the demonstrations and I wrote the report, the camera theoretically should have been destroyed. You know, when you do R and D dollars for for tests, you can't take the results of that and reuse it for something else because it's a whole legal thing. But, you know, I didn't care. I just kept it because I thought it was cool. Um, and I put it in a drawer. And that's what it stopped working. You know, it was all wire wrap, as, as uh, David will tell you. Um, and, and that's meant to be a temporary connection. So it wouldn't have surprised me that even by the end of the year, it would have stopped working uh, without major work to, to retighten the connections. I was going to ask if there's any chance it would work anymore, but <laughs> you just answered that. Well, I was, you know, it probably could work. Just don't ask me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, 
I know how hard that would be. <laughs> a lot of people always ask me, like, does it work? And I was like, finding the, these parts, you either need to make it look accurate or I guess hypothetically work accurately. I am not an electrical engineer. I don't know any of the things that S Steve graciously talked about when we were able to meet. Um, I, I don't understand all that stuff, but I am able to duplicate it. I could copy it. So I learned how to do wire wrapping and all these technologies that I have known nothing about had to, I don't know, cut down computer chips and paint them the right color and all that jazz. <laughs> Is there a, a sensor in there? Like, did, did you just rep replicate the Fairchild CCD or did, did you find? It's, it's really, I can go upstairs and grab a screwdriver, but it's really buried in here. So you remove okay. these two screws, open it up, and you could see where it would have gone. Instead of just putting an object, I've tried to find the 201 Fairchild I can't find one on eBay. I've been looking for years. But point being is what I ended up doing was I made a, I took a Raspberry Pi microcomputer, got a sensor, did the whole thing. So my shutter button actually works, but I have the convenience of it for automatically uploads to my phone because we have a few technologies that didn't exist in 1975. So wait, you have a Raspberry Pi in there that actually powers the shutter? It, it The shutter fires it so i have a raspberry pi in here the the sensor is in line and actually works with the the lens and everything so this is just a very fancy case <laughs> wow that's very cool i figured why not so yeah that's the best answer to why is why not <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, steve with the with the ccds and then now it's mainly CMOS sensors that are being used. You mentioned that early on in the days that people with Encodec thought, okay, you're going to hit a wall at some point and it's not going to go any further. With the current technology of sensors, do you see where it might hit a wall and something new has to be developed? Or do you think this is an infinite type of technology that can continue to, to get better? I'm not an expert in, in that, um, but I do know some people that really are experts in that stuff. I know uh, Eric Fossum, actually, I'm going to probably see Eric Fossum in a day or two. Um, and he's the guy that developed the CMOS imager. You invented that. And uh, he now, um, he's at Dartmouth, and they're doing research into GigaJot, where basically they're counting individual photons. I guess there's a limit, um, and that is counting individual photons. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, and, and so, you know, it's very high resolution and that kind of thing. And it's for scientific purposes. I think in terms of capturing human visible scenes, I think you've, 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 you've got all the resolution you need now uh, in, in a practical form. So I don't think there's much, maybe people are researching higher resolution. What is it? The latest Nikon's like 45 megapixels or something. I don't know. I don't know who needs more than that, but for, for human visible scenes. So, so uh, I don't th think it's a technical limit. I think it's just an application limit. That's, that's quite interesting because I can, I can see how one of the, the downfalls has always been digital zoom, but, the more you capture, the more that's going to get better and potentially create different types of devices. Um, I was just trying to understand where, where the limit would sort of end up. Yeah, from a physics point of view, I guess it is to be counting photons, um, you know, but from a practical application point of view, 
how much do you want to zoom? And then you have all the, the geometry of vibration and things like that that become an issue. And of course, of course. So, so uh, I would imagine there's, there's a limit there too from a systems point of view. I wanted to ask uh, Todd Gustafson a question. Um, Todd, I, you know, I regret you and I have never spoke before. I'm only familiar with you through your book. Um, but I mean, you have a section in the back of it where, you know, Stephen has written something. Uh, you have a whole page about his camera too. Uh, aside from kind of being a historian as well, like what – what is your role like? Were you in development in, in at Rochester for Kodak, or what's your background? Well, um, that's a, that's a kind of a complicated question. I sort of ended here in, in some ways by accident. I was a photographer at Chautauqua Institution. Uh, the director from George Eastman House met me there, and I don't know. They were working on a video disc project system where they would shoot collection on film transferred to video disc and with their database, they would make it available over this thing called the internet. So that sort of was interesting to me. I actually, you know, I, I was an early user of di digital photography, but not really an early adopter. So we were playing with these things many, many years ago, trying to make the collections available. We were basically scanning film at that time. And, and, uh, you know, at some point we transitioned over. I mean, we're basically in the process of still doing that. We're making the collections available that way. My, my background is, is in photography, uh, although I do have some uh, mechanical and, you know, I own a solder gun. Uh, the other thing that's sort of interesting, about five years ago, I started tinkering with trying to make some of these old digital cameras viable. I sort of stumbled into something called UF RAW, which UF RAW basically allows pretty much any of the standard formats that come out of the old cameras to still be readable. So if, if you can get it out of the camera, you can read it in UF RAW. I have a DCS 200 working. I actually had a, a RIT student in a couple of weeks ago who had a 100 working or, or just the DCS as it was known. The early camera is a little more complicated because you need the computer operating system to be able to download the images through some sort of a cable, whether it's a serial or a SCSI. Uh, the 200 was a little complicated because I had to find a working uh, Mac PowerBook G3 and the SCSI adapter, which I got from Jim McGarvey, actually. Uh, it, it's, it's available. I mean, so, so part of my thinking is whether anybody's interested in this sort of stuff or not, uh, the, the concept of, of digital archive. I mean, we, the museum has historic process workshops with uh, chemicals, with chemistry film. Why not do it digitally? So I just started doing this. Uh, my feeling is if, if if somebody doesn't do it now, it won't be done because the, the, the code will all be gone. So kind of kind of my knowledge of this. I agree 100%. I think the window of collectability of the early digital cameras is very narrow because, you know, like you said, getting some of the stuff to still work is, is a challenge. You know, even uh, I have a Fuji Fine Pix S1 Pro. I had to jump through a lot of hoops even to get that thing working. You know, just simply finding uh, the the USB cord was not easy. You know, I ended up giving up on that and just finding a CF card reader. It was way easier. But uh, it doesn't even write JPEGs. It only writes in a proprietary format. Um, so, you know, you're talking about cameras that are, although chronologically a few years older, they're technologically generations older. You know, there's really no, like, you know, they talk about dogs have dog years. You know, if your dog is two human years they say it's 14 and dog years well in a way digital cameras are kind of the same way like you get a camera from the 90s and that's like more primitive than a a, a barnack leica you know barnack leica you can still put regular 35 millimeter film in it and shoot it 
you know, and get pretty good looking images. You don't really have to jump through too many hoops to get those working, but getting these old digital cameras working is, is a huge challenge. So, uh, I, I think that's super interesting. It's just, you know, there's, there's less of it. And I think that the, 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 the collectors, you know, the big collectors still like tend to lean towards the film cameras, which I mean, I do too, but I also really like some of the cool, like Paul, you mentioned the Canon zap shot, the, the still video cameras. I have an old Mavica. Uh, I've never had a chance to shoot one of the old DCSs other than the Pro right here, which I have. Dan, you have, in addition to your prototype, you showed me a fo- uh, picture of your wall. I mean, you have a lot of really old prototype, or not prototype, but early digital cameras. Yeah, I have uh, hundred about 100 cameras from 1986 to 2006. I kind of tried to limit myself for us, so I'd want to collect everything. And <laughs> trying to get old cameras working as we've talked about and i've talked with todd too it is hard the, the current one i've been trying to and i talked to even todd about this when i was in rochester was the minolta rd175 finding the cable for that that scuzzy port i still can't find that thing <laughs> and what sucks is someone probably has one in a box somewhere it just they just don't know you need it you know, all, all the people who've thrown those away, I'm sure. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a, 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 a scuzzy narrow zip drive. If you need that, it would help. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what the name of it. There were so many stupid scuzzy different ports. Anyway, all the digital camera is, I just, that's where I got into photography. So that's what I really wanted to. And not, not to make you do another correction, Mike, but the, you mentioned in your article was a lifelong collector of Kodak. I had Kodak because I was collecting the early digital stuff, but it wasn't until I met Steve and Todd when I went a little nuts. And literally in the last year, I have over a hundred Kodak. And I think at the time I maybe had like 10 film ones. Now I have like a hundred plus ones. <laughs> I just checked uh, the rule book. And once you reach over a hundred of, uh, of a type of camera, we're allowed to call you a lifelong conductor. So excellent. It's been approved. The, one last stu- super dumb and funny thing is the first retro ca- digital camera I bought was an Apple quick take because I just thought it was so ridiculous looking. And it was one of the first consumer digital and it wasn't until recently that i learned i don't know i think it was todd who told me this and i researched it later that kodak was the one that made it code it was the same as i think it was the dc40 so i have that one too <laughs> i used one of those for at least three years nice <laughs> well anthony used to do or he still does uh, underwater diving and you had a, a very early digital underwater rig right yeah we you know i was i was Involved in underwater cinematography and, and photography from 97 until 2007. And so it was right there on that cusp. And like one thing that you learned is if you were going to jump in the water and you had to take a, uh, a Nikonos with a roll of 36, or you could take a, a digital camera with a compact flash card and load up several hundred photographs, you had to figure out how to migrate towards digital as quickly as possible. So we were doing things because I worked for a dive gear manufacturing company we would manufacture our own housings and then come up with like crazy ideas. Like I think I can mount a firewire drive in an external housing to be able to continue to shoot for like, as we were doing exploration dives at like 300 and 400 feet deep where the dives could be six, seven hours long and going places where literally more people had been on the moon than the places we were going. 
So it was important to get documentation because we were also doing work for the Department of Environmental Protection. And that really pushed us uh, hard to figure out how to use digital underwater because just the practicality and the, and you just, the, you know, to be able to come back with 150 images at once was, it was just like a, it was a complete breakthrough. Well, in that era of digital cameras, they weren't exactly small either. So no. you know, fitting that stuff in must've been a challenge. Yeah. They were, there were some crazy large housings. We also did custom housings. Like we, we worked with NHK in Japan and developed a custom housing for their IMAX cameras. And wow. it was like trying to swim with a Volkswagen bus. So Todd, do you, you said you have a couple working ones. Have you, I mean, do you still shoot them or you just kind of get them working and, and then you move on to something else or what do you do with them once you, once you get them working? Well, I get them working and I try to keep them working. Uh, we had a, I had a quick take 100 going, uh, which I was using to, to basically take pictures of uh, various people who came to the museum if they so agreed. And about uh, COVID hit, and I I haven't been able to get it to work uh, the other day. So I don't know what it is. It just it was working yesterday. It's not today, so to speak. But it's I don't know. I, I like a, a challenge. I foolishly take things apart and see if I can put them back together and make it work. It's 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 not always a great idea. I'll say uh, we recently bought a King Jim Da Vinci VA55 that came with I think four rolls of thermal paper. And once I figured out how to work it, because it did not come out with an, it came with no instructions. It, it works actually, well, it works. It's not very good, but it does work. <laughs> That's a, a, a thermal, I see Daniel cracking up. It makes a, a image on a, a black and white image on a thermal paper. It sort of looks like something that comes out of a cash register. And of course, you know, kind of right up the, up the alley, what, what digital photography does, one of the things we have on display is Lunar Orbiter, which is a satellite that was designed by Eastman Kodak Company to photograph and map the surface of the moon in, 19, in the 1960s. Now, it's, it's, all, it's all analog, but if you look at what it does, it shoots film, processes the film in the orbiter, scans it, and sends it back to NASA. Well, that really sounds an awful, like, an awful lot like an iPhone, and they were doing this in 1966, 60, 65, 66, so pretty amazing thing. So it's, it's, it's larger than an iPhone, by the way, but you know, that, that's really, and at least in my mind, that's where the whole idea of, of the concept of, of that Kodak came up with, capture, save, and share. Well, that's really the first thing that could do that. Yeah. A couple, a minute or two ago, I heard in the background something that sounds like an eBay transaction went through. Did somebody buy anything while we were talking? Or am I hearing things? No? Paul? No, actually, I uh, I bought some. <laughs> and uh, I got the... Uh... Is it a SCSI <laughs> cable for a Minolta camera? <laughs> no, it's a battery. It's a battery door for a for a Nikon Z7. Oh, okay, okay, all right. I, I was just, I, I was yeah, muted, but I also thing. I also bought something as well. So okay, we have two purchases on the show. What'd you get, Mark? Today I get in the mail ten boxes of cameras. I got everything from a four x five Zone Six wooden camera to a Leica M10 and a Z7 Nikon. So, you know, I want to test them out. I, I, the, the, I can test the Westa or the Zone 6 because I've got 4x5 film. Uh, I can test the, uh, everything I got I can test except the Z7 because they changed the memory cards. It uses an XQD or a CF Express card, which uh, I don't have. 
So I'm feverishly waiting till the weekend till I can borrow a card from somebody to see how this thing works. <laughs> and that memory card will cost more than most cameras. The memory card for that camera is $100. Yeah. Whereas for a, for, a, for a comparable SD card, now we're less than 20 Right. But of course, you know, I'm the guy that sold PCMCIA cards for $500 uh, for a 16 gigabyte card that had the Eastman Kodak labeled on them. I remember I had one of the PCMCIA hard drives. It had a small, tiny mechanical hard drive, and it plugged into one of those slots. So those things were expensive. Well, I mean, I we use SideQuest drives, we use Zip drives, we SideQuest. use yeah, uh, gosh, the uh, micro. Oh God, drawing a blank. There was actually a card the same size as a compact flash card, but it was a spinning drive. Micro drive. Yeah. Micro drive. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Those were those were works of you know you get a wedding guy go to a wedding with micro drives and uh, he shoots half a wedding and then drops the card. I've got a whole drawer of micro drives because we used them in the D100 with our underwater photography. They always seem very fragile to me. Never had a problem with them. Wow. When I first started working camera retail in Grand Rapids, one of the guys at work would always grab the other guy's micro drive and just throw it on the ground just to be a jerk. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> Are you at Norman's camera? Yes. Great store. Come, come on in. You can see my museum in my office. It's nothing compared to uh, where Todd works, but uh, it's in a little bit smaller space. <laughs> yeah, I go through Grand Rapids from time to time, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't know Norman's was there. I've only ever found Mark's photo in Grand Rapids. So I've gone on there a couple of times, but next time I'm coming through, Daniel, I'm definitely going to come visit you. You guys are all welcome. So you guys, we won't all fit in the same space, but you guys can all come one at a time. I'd be glad to show you all my cameras, <laughs> or at least most of them. So do you have, Daniel, any anything on your wish list that you're you're looking to get besides that cable you're looking at? Or have you kind of gotten to the point where you have everything you want? No, I, I still have some. So after I visited St Todd and Steve, not only did I come up with this master list of Kodak cameras that just kept growing and growing until it reached, I don't know, probably 120 now. Now I'm trying to go to what are the top 20 cameras that change photography in my opinion, because that's a very subjective list. And I have most of them. There are two or three cameras that I want. One is embarrassing to say, I will admit. But uh, Is it a hot pink Hello Kitty Leica? No, I'm, I'm good. No, okay, I, all right, we're good. I, I do have the first one of the first model Barnack Leicas. That was one that I really needed. I don't have an original Nikon F. I, I, I need that one. Paul's got one. Paul, wait, I know. It's that way. There you go. I, I want. He's got a I bunch of them. I've got two. If you want one, I want one of Prism view. The the old view. The he's got it. He's going to show it right know. now, right? I got an F and an F two today. Three, two, one. Show it. I I, I got it packed away. So that that's one. I mean, I work at a camera store. They come in all the time. I just last time it came in, I wasn't thinking about buying it. Um, one of the ugliest cameras that I hate to say I want, but I do need it because it does technically count as the first mirrorless is the Panasonic G1, but I refuse to pay more than a hundred bucks in that ugly, terrible camera. <laughs> um, and then I need the Nikon or the Canon F1 because that is what Kodak used to make the first DCS camera. And that will be my next replica alongside of the Ecamm, by the way, Steve. <laughs> well, technically that's the new F1. It's the flat black one, not not the shiny black. Say it again, Todd. Oh well, well they, they use what was called the new F one. It's it's a 
the, the, the Canon F1 actually came out in 1970. That was a, a shiny black camera. So the one you're talking about is was called uh, the new F1. So it came out in the in the middle 80s. Okay. I guess they didn't want to call it the F2. That was already uh, trademarked. Right. <laughs> that exactly. would have been a problem. They had to call it the new F1. They had already used the F1N also. So. Right. You know, one of the interesting thing that's happening at the moment coming out of Japan, and um, we laugh about it offline when we're talking, but it's the, the new Digicam craze. And what's driving that is actually the early small digital cameras with the CCD uh, sensors, which has a particular look. And it seems to be getting very popular now. So that, that is something that um, must admit that, you know, I've fallen into, I've started collecting a whole bunch of little ones, little CCD compact cameras. That That is something that's on the horizon, I think, for, for, for people to see, you know, hitting Instagram and all those kind of pages very soon. I knew that was going to make it in here sooner or later. (laughs) I kept threatening it. (laughs) The biggest problem though, with, with any camera from that era is that they weren't made to last. You know, those early digital cameras are once they die, you really can't fix them. You know, it's like the contacts G2s and the, the Ashika T's, you know, if you get one that works, that's great. But, you know, some of the, like you said, Theo, some of the prices on some of those early digital cameras are pretty crazy already. I'd, I'd be I, terrified. I, I mean, I picked, I picked this up in a thrift shop um, on the weekend. It's a Olympus XZ1 and thought nothing of it sitting by itself there on the shelves. Um, you know, it's, a, it's actually a really nice, solid little camera and, you know, going for peanuts. And then I look up on, online and these things are now starting to sell like three or four hundred dollars yeah and this was made in i think 2012 i think i I worked out the other day that just just amazes me now that they've gone full circle yeah yeah robert you might be amused by my my project of the week i'm working with the community darkroom here in gainesville and we're we're accepting donations of 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 anything that we can to get a darkroom up and running that we can uh, teach classes teach film developing and you know, part of this is you know old high school dark rooms that are just clearing out their closets and giving us everything. And uh, I, I received a, a box of bulk loaders of Alden bulk bulk loaders, none of which were labeled, uh, but all mm. of which had film. And so it's been a lot of just like snip testing oh, and seeing what I have. And uh, so far, my favorite find is that I've got 150 feet of, of tech pan. Wow! And I have been having a blast. I have been. Going out and you know because I it was, it's from it's from 1979 and we weren't sure you know whether I should try to shoot it at you know 25 18 8 5 whatever I've been shooting this actually my backdrop is a landscape that I shot yesterday with my my M3 um, wow. I'm having so much fun with that film and you know I'd never you know it's funny because it's a film that while it was around I never shot with it I, I shot mostly with Panatomic X and uh, and then and then plus x i am blown away by that film and i've been you know since i, I can't get uh technodol i've been developing it in hc 110 um, too contrasty if you have a suggestion for another great low contrast developer for that i'm, I'm all ears something that's like currently available yeah well you can it's something called poda which is a gram and a half of phenidone and 20 or 30 grams of sodium sulfite to a liter okay that's similar to Technodol. I you can send me an email and I'll mail it to you. Oh, fantastic. Uh, what we did for Technodol powder is we basically took a gram and a half of phenidone, 20 or 30 grams of sodium sulfite, and then we added a material to it that made it stable 
can't I, I to this day I still can't tell you what that is. But we had a material <laughs> that we we tried and the powder was stable for probably decades because this other material would would stabilize it. But that will work good and it'll get HC one ten even at high dilutions like one to sixty-three, you have a hard time controlling the contrast. Contrast will get to sixty-five. But yeah. with POTA, you'll get down into the 56 range. So okay. send me an email, Robert Chamber or making Kodak film at yahoo.com. Okay, I will do because I'm even even because I've, I've been using the HC 110 at dilution F, which is, I think is one to 79. Yeah. And even with that, I'm just absolutely delighted with, with what I've been getting from it. Well, you'll get finer huh. grain with POTA than you get with HC 110. Cool. HC 110 is kind of an active material. The photo chem business is kind of a mess. You know, Kodak tried to exit the business and they ended up selling it to the Chinese. And I'm not sure they're terribly conscientious about their product quality. Yeah. Mark Peterson, we haven't heard from you all episode. Happy to have you here. It's, sometimes it's fun just to listen, but do you have any questions for anybody? I'm, uh, I'm getting ready to move and uh, I'm getting ready to set up some space in my dark room, set up a, a larger and do my own developing. But uh, I do have a question just in general from folks is what's your uh, favorite film that you can buy in bulk in a hundred foot spools or I don't know what any larger, but just curious. I don't have anything specific about the digital question, but uh, I'm going to get into bulk rolling and uh, curious what folks are using. The stuff I use the most of is TMX 100. It's rough on your fixer, but otherwise I love the results. It's very predictable. Uh, for me, because I shoot so many different cameras that are in questionable operating condition, I tend to favor 100 speed films because that's the sweet spot, I feel like, for shutters where it's neither too fast nor too slow. They're usually fairly accurate. So I tend to like to keep at 100 speed. Um, you know, you can reasonably shoot them still in like shade, handheld, but it's it's not so fast that, you know, it's going to blow out in sunlight too. So. You know, honestly, most of the 100 speed films are are, are pretty good. Films like Kentmere are obviously a lot cheaper. Uh, you, you know, you're not going to get amazing results from it, but they're certainly satisfying enough, especially for a beginner. But to answer your question, my favorite that you can easily get is T Max. My favorite of all time, Anthony already mentioned, is Panatomic X. Good luck finding that. I just got outbid on another 100 foot roll. I've talked too much about it. And now everybody wants it and you just can't find it anymore. I've got three that are the ones that I kind of go back to. Uh, one is the, 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 the Ilford Pan F, which is like a 50 ISO film, uh, which yeah. is as close as anything that we're going to get right now to Panatomic that's commercially available that's still around. It's not the same, but it's, it's, a, it's a good slow speed film. Uh, I also like the, the Rolly Super Pan 200 because... Uh, it both takes a, if you put a 25 a filter on it or a 720 IR filter, it gives you very good, strong infrared results. And if you shoot it normally and you can use the, uh, the Scala developing kit to get black and white reversal and it has a really interesting tonality about it as a reversal film. So it's, it's at like three uses in one. And then the other is, uh, the, the Orvo, uh, UN54, which is their hundred speed film. It's about $75 for hundred feet. And for just a good general purpose, you know, 100 speed film, which I, I'm in Florida, so it's very bright all the time. I don't really have to worry about gloomy days that much. 
so that I probably shoot more of that than anything else. And then for a budget film, the FOMA 100. Perfect. I tend to gravitate towards the Delta 100. Personally, I like the balance it has between you know contrast and sharpness, everything else. But I kind of fell into that developing that with the stand developing, and that's my that's my go to. So have you ever developed yourself, Mark, or you're just getting back into it in the new place? Uh, yeah, no, I have never. Um, I've just been over the last year or so just collecting stuff as I see stuff come up. I, it's very rewarding. I mean, I, I recommend it to you, to anybody. Yeah, mostly I was uh, just in such a small space that I didn't have a safe place to store chemicals with a small child around. So yeah. get a little bit more space and lock it up. And, and... and Don't limit yourself to black and white. You know, this is a tip for anybody. Like, you know, I got started with film developing. I did black and white because everybody said it's easier. And in some ways it is. But, you know, don't rule out C41. Um, it's harder to get it in bulk. And the prices for C41 right now is ridiculous. But if the prices ever do come back down, uh, don't rule out doing C41 because it's very doable at home. And one advantage, I think, um, it, that it, that makes C41 even maybe even easier than black and white is there's really only one way to do it. You know, get a unicolor kit, just follow the directions, and you will get good results. It doesn't matter whether it's Kodak film, Fuji film. It doesn't matter whether it's lightly expired or fresh. It doesn't matter if it's slow, fast. You follow the exact same steps every single time for C41, and you're going to get results. Whereas with black and white, you know, I have my favorite. Some people like Rodinol. Some people like Caffeinol. There's Technodol. There's there's D76. There's variations on D76. HC110. There's the massive dev chart. There's stand developing. There's non-stand developing there's semi stand there's cold stand it, it it starts to get overwhelming the list like, goes on <laughs> it goes on yeah i mean and again it's not to say don't do black and white but like i feel like after i got into black and white i started to like feel like i knew less the more i read whereas with color c41 it, just follow the directions on the kit and it, you're gonna it's gonna be fine so but obviously the difference is c41 is pretty particular about temps so make sure you get a good thermometer uh, whereas black and white, you can as long as you're in the ballpark, you're probably going to be fine. Perfect. Well, we've hit a good point in the show. Want to wind down here and get everybody a chance to to throw one last thing out there if they have any other questions or anything. Stephen, amazing. I'm so happy you were able to come on the show. Robert, you know. You've been one of my favorite guests that we've ever had. I really, really like these historical shows, even if it's less about the gas, because some people tend to really like those in terms of engagement. I, I love the history. I love hearing these stories. Uh, I've said it many, many times, both on this podcast and on my site, that I, I think it's awesome to be able to preserve the knowledge that you guys have, because one day you know, we're not all going to be around, you know, this information is going to disappear at some point. So being able to share these stories and hear it firsthand on how things like the digital camera first came out is amazing. Robert, your insights into just making Kodak film is fantastic. Uh, Todd, I have a feeling you have a wealth of knowledge somewhere in that head that uh, I'd like to, to poke at, you know, because, um, you know, your book is, is really, really good. Daniel, you know, having you on the show with that prototype, uh, for real quick, how I met Daniel, I actually sold him my Kodak Ektra, and I recognized his name, and I said, "Hey, uh, would you be willing to do this, you know, uh, d directly?" And he was kind of like, "I don't know, man." But we ended up doing it, you know, and then started talking, and he told me about his prototype and knowing Stephen, and I was like, "Wow, we really need to talk a little bit more." And and I'm I'm really hoping to get up to Grand Rapids soon to visit you for sure. But I don't have any other questions, so I'll, I'll kind of throw the mic out for anybody else who has anything else they want to say. If I can give a pitch to the uh, the Camerosity Instagram account. Uh, you know, for the, we, well, I developed a, a hashtag for it, which is just hashtag Camerosity podcast. And if any of our listeners 
are taking photos with with interesting or historic cameras and they want their uh, photos to be you know, re, re-grand and put onto our stories, uh, just use the hashtag. I'll, I'll keep an eye on it and we'll get you onto the uh, Camerosity feed. Todd, did you have something you want to say? Yeah, I was going to say, if, I, I don't know if you, you folks are more or less aware, I assume, but if, if you want to see a really nice collection of cameras, I highly encourage you to come visit the collection at the George Eastman Museum. You'll, you'll see things that are just hard to believe. We have uh, original Kodak serial number six. It was one of the first ones that was made and 1887, a test camera, if you would. And, and uh, uh, we were the first to display Steve's camera actually in, in 2014 until we loaned it to the Smithsonian, but that's another story. But again, we, we have just an amazing run of things. Uh, and and uh, I guess Daniel can attest that he's, he's seen it. So it's highly worth the trip. I, I second that because I was up there pre couple of years pre-pandemic and that was a wonderful tour. Yeah, I'll third it as well. The uh, Todd, I don't even know if you remember me, I own Packard Shutter. And You're I'm, the Packard Shutter guy, right? I'm the Packard Shutter <laughs> guy, yeah. And I, I toured the, he, Todd gave me a tour three, four years ago. And yeah, I would recommend it to anyone. It's, a, it's an amazing place. Anything you'd ever want to see, he's got, got it. We may have to do a mobile Camerosity podcast on the road. <laughs> Does that mean you follow me over from Sydney? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. We'll start saving our ad revenue. I'll mention that Steve and Todd and I have lunch frequently pre-pandemic, and we're getting ready, hopefully, to do that again. And we, we have a little group of people to get together at the George Eastman Museum and have interesting lunch discussions. So if you wander our way to see the collection i'm sure we'd be glad to meet you for lunch is the is the museum the same as eastman house yes okay i've had uh i've had renamed and the eastman house has recently put on a new visitor center so the entrance and bookshop and cafe have all been rebuilt from scratch and it's quite nice now as it always was all right so uh what a great episode once again thanks you guys um we'll be back in two weeks with our next show we have a couple ideas for some future episodes some special guests uh we're working on what should be a very interesting slash entertaining story to talk about on the next show that's coming up this weekend, but I'll be intentionally vague so as not to spoil any surprises. But um, hopefully that'll pan out to be a lot of fun to talk about. We don't have anybody scheduled for the next week. We'll be back Monday, May 16th with episode 26, TBD, on what the discussion will be about. But I expect it'll be quite entertaining. So thank you guys for coming on the show. Uh, I look forward to talking to you guys more. So um, have a good night, everybody. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. Thanks, Robert. cameras which record images directly into memory rather than on film allow cyber shooters to snap and download images directly into their computers. Most people shoot their pictures with conventional cameras and film, but now with digital cameras you can actually store those images with removable memory cards like this or on the hard drive or even on the internal memory of the camera. You just connect the camera to your computer, download the images you want and voila, you've got pictures.